Welcome to the Cranberry Chronicles, a podcast where we'll be discussing all things cranberries, including where they come from, why we love them, and how they love us back. We'll be delivering a fresh science-backed perspective on health, wellness, and nutrition trends translated into a language that we can all actually use. I'm your host, Bonnie Tab Dix. You'll find me on Instagram at Bonnie Tab Dix and BTD Media or at my website, betterthandieting.com. So whether you're a registered dietitian, a health professional, a wellness enthusiast, or just a cranberry connoisseur, we welcome you. I am so excited to be here today to talk about a topic that is near and dear to me, and that is heart health. Heart disease has appeared on both sides of my family, and that's not such a surprise since heart disease is the leading cause of death for men, women, and people of most racial and ethnic groups in our country. It's hard to believe that one person dies from cardiovascular disease every 34 seconds in the United States. But there is good news here. The risk factors of heart disease, including high blood pressure, high blood cholesterol, excessive alcohol use, obesity, diabetes, and smoking are preventable. And now we're going to tell you how you could make some simple swaps in your diet to protect your heart through the sage advice we're going to get from our esteemed guests, two powerhouse dietitians who specialize in cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Let me first introduce you to Kim Rose, a registered dietitian nutritionist, certified diabetes care and education specialist, and certified nutrition support clinician in South Central Florida. Her inclusive approach and philosophy revolve around making nutrition easy and attainable. Kim uproots common food-related misconceptions in her private nutrition practice and empowers her clients to build sustainable eating patterns for better blood sugar management. With over a decade of experience, Kim has taught thousands of clients, patients, and their families to enjoy the food they love while learning to manage their medical conditions. You could find more about Kim Rose at KimRoseDietitian.com. And our next guest is Michelle Rothenstein. Michelle is a cardiology dietitian, a registered dietitian nutritionist, and certified diabetes educator. Michelle helps individuals take a proactive role in their heart health by teaching them to reduce the risk of heart attacks and strokes and increasing the quality of life through science-based nutrition and lifestyle management. Michelle has more than a decade of experience where she takes a personalized approach to long-term nutrition and lifestyle changes by merging the science with her clients' lifestyles. Learn more about Michelle and her services on her website, entirelynourished.com. Okay, so let's get started. From an RD perspective, why should we be paying more attention to heart health? And this includes younger people, by the way. Michelle, would you like to start us off? Yeah. So thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited to have this conversation. So why is it important? Well, like you mentioned in the introduction, heart disease is the number one killer globally. But research shows that 80% or even more is preventable through science-based nutrition and lifestyle medicine. So we have the opportunity to reduce the risk and actually reduce the global burden if we are more proactive in our health. And a lot of times, you know, the question is, well, if it's so preventable, then why? what are we doing wrong? And I don't think we're doing anything wrong per se. It's more that we're 
most people don't think they're at risk for heart disease. Most people don't think it's going to happen to them. And so they don't know they're at risk. And if you don't know you're at risk, then how do you take a empowered and proactive approach? So a big part of it is being more proactive in your health to help reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease and to implement science-based nutrition and lifestyle interventions as early as possible. Yeah, that's so true, especially because whatever diet is healthy for your heart is healthy for you anyway. So whether you are older, younger, doesn't make a difference. It's still a healthy diet. So I think that's what makes it so easy to try to follow a diet like this because it's good for everyone. Kim, what's your take on this? Thank you, Bonnie. And thank you for having me on the show. I definitely think Michelle hit the nail right on the head when she stated that a lot of individuals don't realize that they are at risk for cardiovascular disease. So in the population that I work with, specifically type 2 diabetes, a lot of my clients are dumbstruck when they realize that they are at an increase, a two times increased risk for cardiovascular-related conditions. And I think a lot of people just think that cardiovascular and diabetes is only about food and nutrition and that it's isolated and it doesn't impact the other organs in the body. When in actuality, all everything, because we have type 2 diabetes and because our blood sugars are high, wherever we have an artery, diabetes and high blood sugars are going to impact that. And it can especially impact your cardiovascular health. So I like to tell people that ignorance is not bliss. Knowledge is power. So really increasing your knowledge about how different conditions can impact your heart health is imperative. It is so true. And you know, along those lines, I think that part of finding out whether heart disease is actually a problem for you or not is by having some simple tests. And we know that there are so many different ways to measure heart risks, but you know, sadly, especially over the past three years during the pandemic, a lot of people didn't go to the doctor for preventative tests because they just didn't want to go out and go to the doctor, but they were skipping their annual checkups and doing screening. So what are the simple tests that someone could take to uncover whether they're actually at risk for heart disease? Michelle, can you let us know about that? So there's a lot of tests you can take, but the simple ones that you get at any physical are your basic lipid panel. So that looks at cholesterol. It looks at your LDL, your HDL, your triglycerides. And we want to optimize these. So what I mean by that is many times the standards are a little bit lenient and we need to be a little more stricter if you have a family history of heart disease. We used to think that if someone has a high HDL, it doesn't, but they have a high LDL, it kind of cancels each other out. And our research is really pointing to, in fact, LDL is more an indicative of heart disease than HDL. And HDL doesn't necessarily protect the LDL from going into the arterial wall and causing plaque. So we really need to look at LDL. We need to look at triglycerides. We need to look at blood pressure. We need to look at blood sugar levels. We need to look at hemoglobin A1C, which is a better indicator than just blood sugar levels alone. We need to look at inflammatory markers like like HSCRP. We need to look at waist circumference, which you can do in your own home where you measure it around your belly button to ensure that we are addressing all potential risk factors for heart disease. We used to think that a lot of people, I think, still think that heart disease is kind of 
isolated in just your lipid panel, but 70% of people who have heart attacks are insulin resistant. And we see that some people who have heart attacks don't have high LDL, but they have high inflammatory markers or they have high blood pressure. So we need to look at everything and we can't just cherry pick, oh, well, my blood sugar is good or, oh, my blood pressure is good, but my LDL is high, so it's fine. We need to optimize all of them. And through a heart healthy diet, we are optimizing all of these values. We're not isolating and picking and choosing. You know, the more we talk, the more we're seeing this overlap between diabetes and heart disease. And I think that's really something that a lot of people don't understand that going to the doctor, it's not just about getting your cholesterol checked, that you may have to check your A1C as well, because they are so closely related. So I'm looking forward to hearing even more. Kim, we know that when it comes to heart disease, that genetics plays a very strong role. As I mentioned, it's in both sides of my family. But for me, even though I know that this could be a part of my destiny, I am not putting out a welcome mat. So I try as best as I can to help prevent disease. So can you talk a little bit about genetics or perhaps a role that stress might play in relation to diabetes and heart disease? Yeah, let's get into that because I feel that's a very loaded question, especially for someone that may be listening to the podcast and wondering to themselves, well, you know, my blood sugar is high or I have a family history of it. What does that mean for me? So let's break that down a little further. So when we speak about risk factors, there's risk factors that we can control and there's risk factors that we cannot control. So let's start off with the risk factors that we cannot control first. We cannot control our age. I don't know about you, but I have not found the fountain of youth as yet. We have not, we cannot control our family history. So if we have a first degree relative, such as a sibling or a parent that does have diabetes or any cardiovascular related diseases, that means that that puts us at an increased risk. But what I'd like to lean into is the factors that we can control. So looking at what type of foods are we consuming? Are we consuming produce-rich foods? Specifically speaking about fruits, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans tells us that 80%, roughly 80% of Americans are not consuming enough fruits. And when we take that into consideration, we see that is a real opportunity to decrease our risk and also prevent morbidity and mortality. You also asked about stress, Bonnie, and I think stress is really one of those things that we don't address enough. Because when we look at cardiovascular related illnesses, we realize that chronic stress is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular related events. So it's not just the foods that we're eating, it's also how are we managing the stress in our body? When we look at physical activity, which I know that we're going to get into a little later, that is a risk factor that we can control. When we look at whether we smoke or not, that is a risk factor that we can control. And also adequate rest. I feel like especially with the time change, rest is such an unsung superhero because if we don't get adequate rest, then this can cause our cortisol levels to be elevated, which increases our blood sugars. And because our blood sugars are coursing all around our arteries, this can also impact our risk for cardiovascular events if they're not addressed and corrected. So I think when we look at the risk factors and family history and stress and what we can prevent and what we can't prevent, it is a multi-part question. So I really want to encourage those listening to focus on what you can. I know it may seem overwhelming, but pick one or two things to focus on and really improve your health from that perspective. 
That is great advice. It really is great advice. And I think that one step at a time helps to prevent overwhelm, which of course sometimes could become magnetic and then lead to other good habits. So I think that that's great advice. Michelle, would you like to add anything to this question? So first off, Kim, I think you summarized it really beautifully. So I really appreciate that. To add on a couple of things to drive home. So your genetic, we've actually in a recent study looked at people who had a very high genetic polymorph, like all of their genes showed you are at risk for having a premature heart attack. And we followed them. And what they saw in the study that individuals who implemented lifestyle change silenced those genes and actually had a better outcome than people who had a poor lifestyle. So even though we have these uncontrollable risk factors, the ones we can control kind of outweigh them. So your destiny, if you have heart disease in your family, which many people do, it does not mean that you are going to have a heart attack or stroke or have a cardiovascular event or cardiovascular disease if we implement risk management and lifestyle change to really modify the individual's risk. Another thing I want to really drive home because I see this so often in my practice is that people come to me and they're like, I don't know how I had a heart attack. I'm an athlete. I look great on the outside. Everyone said I was so healthy. No one ever said I was a red flag. And we typically think of someone who has a risk factor for heart disease as maybe an older person, particularly a male who's very overweight or obese. And we just, that's the mindset of someone who has a heart attack. It's important to know that heart disease does not discriminate based off of your weight, your body size. So I don't want that to delay you from going to the doctor and getting these simple blood tests so that you can be proactive in your health. If you don't know, there's no way we can be empowered to take control of our heart and our whole body. So super important to know that you have a lot of control and take that empowered approach. The other thing I like to add is stress can come in many forms. We can't get rid of stress in life, but I particularly see a lot of people have health anxiety from a diagnosis of a health condition. And I think when we switch that idea of, okay, we're taking small steps to change, but we're also taking an empowered approach of, hey, look, I'm doing what I can to control and manage this condition. We help reduce that health anxiety as well. Well, you know, you just made me think of a TV show I did years ago. And basically the story was about people who looked amazing on the outside. And yet when they did go have tests done, that they found that they really were not as healthy as they thought that they would be. And that they also had something called visceral fat, which is a fat that's around, you know, their arteries and around their organs and how dangerous that could be. So sometimes it's not just a matter of how you look. It's really a matter of what's going on inside. And as we talked about about earlier, these simple tests could really tell a very different story. Can I add something to that, Bonnie? So a couple months ago, I was speaking to a diabetologist out in California, and you know, one of his passions, uh, Dr. Jay Schuler, was really finding the difference between men and women and how they experience, you know, heart attacks. And one thing that he brought up, which I find to be so interesting, especially with women, is that sometimes women may not have that classical chest pain, that classical angina. But if they do have diabetes, 
their blood sugars may one day just increase all of a sudden, even though they are eating the same, their physical activity is the same. So definitely to just, you know, add on that point about, you know, really knowing your numbers, knowing your A1C, knowing your blood pressure and knowing your cholesterol, and then also monitoring on a daily basis what your blood sugars are doing is important for your cardiovascular health as well. So especially with women, if you just find your numbers are going up all of a sudden, don't just brush it underneath the rug. Take a proactive approach and, and you know, inform your physician. Absolutely. You know, what I find so interesting about that is that women very often know who have come to me have known their husband's labs. They know all about what their kids' labs are. They even know what their parents' laboratory values are. And yet for themselves, they focus more on their weight than they do on their own laboratory values. So it is something I feel very passionate about. But, you know, speaking of women, our mothers always told us that we should be eating more fruits and vegetables and that that's the easiest and the most delicious way to help your heart. And one perfect example of this is actually a study that was done about a year ago that was in a journal called Food and Function. And they found that the daily consumption of cranberries for one month improved cardiovascular function in healthy men. And in this study, the men consumed whole cranberry powder, which was equivalent to one cup of cranberries a day. Or there was a placebo group for one month, and it was found that consuming the cranberry actually showed a significant improvement of heart and blood vessel function. And cranberries contained polyphenols, which have been also not only linked to heart disease, but also have shown benefits in terms of being linked to brain health, and they support the microbiome. So the bottom line on this study, as well as so many other studies, tells us that by consuming more fruits and vegetables, as you mentioned, we could prevent a whole wide range of diseases. So Kim, from a diabetes perspective, I know that when you pair fruit with protein or and or fat, that that could be beneficial in terms of controlling blood sugar, but a lot of people don't realize this. Could you just explain why this would be a good practice for your blood sugar and for your heart? So I like to tell people that if they do choose to do the dried cranberries or cranberry sauce or even 100% cranberry juice or even 27% cranberry juice, it's important to pair that carbohydrate with a protein. And the reason for that is because it can really help to negate blood sugar spikes. So the thing about it with diabetes, there's no such thing as a diabetic diet. And I know the audience can't see me, but I'm throwing up air quotes. There is no such thing. All foods can fit into a healthy lifestyle, even if you do have a diagnosis of diabetes. It's a matter of pairing your foods properly, making sure that you're paying attention to your serving sizes and enjoying the foods that you do eat. So true. Something that I know as dietitians, we've been, I don't want to say preaching, but I will say trying to convey throughout our practices. And there are some other foods that I would love to discuss here where there are a lot of myths about them, a lot of misunderstandings. Can we talk about, you know, a few other foods like protein, fat? Kim, I don't know if you want to weigh in. Michelle, if you'd like to weigh in too. Kim, you want to start us off? Sure. Let's talk about protein. So protein, I feel, is a very popular nutrient. It gives energy to the body. I feel like media is always talking about protein, but to, particularly with protein to, I don't want to say enhance, but to be mindful of cardiovascular health as well as diabetes. 
definitely choosing options that have a lean protein to it. So for instance, I mean, taking the visible fat off your protein of choice, removing the skin from your chicken and turkey, making sure that you are grilling or baking instead of deep frying. And the reason for that is when it comes to blood sugars, I have found with my clients, if they eat something that is very high in fat, then that may cause their blood sugar levels to be elevated. And it can also impact heart health. When it comes to fat, I like to tell my clients to focus more on mono as well as unsaturated fats because they can be beneficial for heart health, especially when consumed in moderation. So some examples of monounsaturated fats, I think of avocados, which automatically come to mind. I don't know if that's the island girl in me. I also think of nuts and seeds and with polyunsaturated fat, I think of like soybeans and flax seeds, which can have a cardioprotective benefit. What do you think, Michelle? So first off, it's important that we kind of debunk a big component that I find very prevalent in my practice is whenever someone's trying to go on a diet, they usually say they're going to eliminate something, right? Low carb, low fat, low protein. And I want to really stress the importance that these are macronutrients. We need all of them to thrive. So we need protein. We need heart healthy fats. We need complex carbohydrates to get all of the nutrients we need for our heart to work, for our blood flow to be optimal, for us to lower our numbers to optimal levels. So it's important that we are not ever getting rid of any of these macronutrients. Let's talk a little bit about sodium. Michelle, what do you think about sodium in the diet? I think a lot of times the most common thing that a doctor tells a patient when they have a heart issue is low sodium. And so when people come to me, they're on a no salt diet. They're like so terrified. They're like, my husband made something and put a pinch of salt. I was like, no, 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 I can't eat it. So I want to just clarify because I think sodium is something that people are know about in heart health. And I think a lot of times people take it to an extreme. We are not saying a no salt diet. I think that's important to acknowledge. We do definitely want to reduce it because it will, at large quantities, cause vasoconstriction, constriction in the arteries, which can increase blood pressure, increase the size of a heart, and also lead to heart failure. So we definitely want to decrease it, but we don't need to eliminate it. So if you have known heart disease, we're looking at 1,500 milligrams per day. If you're looking at from a preventative general standpoint, it's more lenient up to 2,000, even up to 2,300 milligrams per day. But we need to be realistic about it because we don't want to eliminate, but we don't want to go in excess. And this is, you know, where label reading comes in. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about this later on, but you have to look at serving size as well, because where a can of soup could come in, one can of soup could provide all the sodium you need for the day. So it really is important to read labels. And the same goes for sugar that labels changed a few years ago, where now we are listing added sugar as well as natural sugar. But I think again, and I'd like to ask you about that, Kim, but what I wanted to say about that also, especially in relation to cranberries, as you mentioned, is that it's not just the one number that we look at, that just because a food has sugar doesn't mean that it's something that you shouldn't be eating because you have to look at the value of the food, like cranberries, with providing other benefits that could be for your heart, for your brain, for your gut. So I think it's important to look at the whole profile of the food and not just one nutrient listed on the label. Kim, do you want to talk to us a little bit about natural versus added sugar? 
Sure. And I think that, you know, you hit the nail right on the head when you said looking at the overall nutrition profile. So when we look at the dietary guidelines for Americans, the 2020 to 2025 guidelines, they say something that I feel that a lot of people overlook. They never say in the guidelines to avoid added sugar. That language is not there. Instead, what it's saying is to limit added sugar to about 10% of your daily calorie intake. Now, that does not mean that natural sugar is better and added sugar is bad. Added sugar can enhance the palatability. It can enhance color. It can also preserve. When we're speaking about cranberries, cranberry juice, cranberry sauce, and also dried cranberries have some elements of added sugar to it, simply because that is a very tart fruit. But then when we look at the nutrition profile, when we've realized that, hey, it has fiber in it, and roughly 90% of Americans are not getting enough fiber as is, it also has polyphenols in it, which can help with gut health. And also it's an antioxidant. And when we also look at the fact that it's loaded with different nutrients, it has a benefit to us. So I definitely think that the pros outweigh the cons. And as I stated earlier, there's no such thing as a diabetic diet or diabetes diet. All foods can fit, but just making sure that the foods that do have added sugar in them also have a nutritive component. And, you know, speaking of beverages, I wonder, Michelle, if you could comment on alcohol or mocktails. Mocktails have become so popular now, yet a mocktail could contain so much sugar and other ingredients that you wouldn't want to have. So I'd love for you to comment on this. So there used to be this thought that red wine is, you know, everyone who has heart disease should be drinking a glass of red wine with their food. People are like, oh, I started drinking it because it's heart healthy. And then we've seen more and more studies that show that when you actually realize that what we thought was heart healthy about the wine was the resveratrol in it. Once it gets to a person's glass and they're actually drinking it, there's virtually no resveratrol in there because it's now oxidized. So then it goes to, okay, does it relax? Relax you? Is it a stress reliever? Could that be, or is it the other lifestyle components that are causing it? So we haven't seen any benefit with alcohol consumption. And we really see the less you drink, the better it is from a cardiovascular standpoint. But if it's zero to one to two drinks a week, there's really no negative, no benefit. It kind of is a neutral standpoint. So trying to reduce alcohol intake is helpful. I look kind of to mocktails as it's alcohol free, but like you said, a lot of them can have a lot of added sugars to it. So if it's something that you enjoy and you have here and there, I don't think that's a problem because all foods do fit. But if it's something that we're having excessively, like several times a week at many of them, that can really add up and we would want to curtail that. Exactly. And maybe not to have that drink at the bar before you have your dinner, because that could really have an impact on your blood sugar. And you may think that you're, oh, this drink is going right to my head, but actually your blood sugar could be plummeting. So you have to be careful about that. Okay. So as a media dietitian, I'm often asked to weigh in on new studies that hit the headlines. And there are two new studies that we heard about recently that were focused on, number one, the impact of a keto-like diet on your heart. Why this should be such a surprise, I don't know, when it's a diet that really is composed of 70% fat, the keto diet I'm talking about. But the reason why this diet was called keto-like is because it included 45% fat and 25% carbs instead of the typical keto diet, which is 70% fat and 10% carbs. 
10% carbs, just to give you a reference, is like the equivalent to the carbs in one big banana. So that would mean that if you had one banana in a day, that would be all you would have, like no more of any other carbohydrates at all. So Michelle, could you weigh in on this? And then I have another study that I wanted to ask you about, Kim. So when the keto phase was at its hype, I would get clients who would show me their cholesterol panel. And trust me, I've seen a lot of cholesterol panels. I've never seen these numbers ever. Like I've been seeing cholesterol levels in the 700s because of the keto diet. And so that to me, before all this research was done, was a red flag. But even if that didn't occur, the keto diet is so high in saturated fat because you're on a high fat diet. That's one part that's contributing to heart disease. But on the other hand, you're deficient in a lot of nutrients that are cardioprotective. You're reducing your fiber intake. You can lead to constipation. And I think it's so important to, if you're constipated, your heart health is not at the optimal place. You can't excrete and clean out your arteries if you're not going to the bathroom effectively. So there's so many red flags in the keto diet. And Kim, there was a, another study that came out talking about the dangers or potential dangers of erythritol. And this study seemed to come as a surprise to even to the investigators. And even the authors themselves note that there was an association found between erythritol and a clotting risk factor, not necessarily definitive proof, but it was an association. So I know that as with all studies, we need to have more studies. But in the meantime, you know, do you feel like if you're consuming products that contain erythritol that you may want to find comparable substitutes or just eat less of them in terms of heart disease? You know, Bonnie, I'm very happy that you brought up this question because it's not just erythritol. It's a whole host of other artificial sweeteners as well. And I've had clients that have come to me and they are just in shambles about what do I do? So me personally, I have seen both ends of the spectrum. I have seen sugar alternatives to be beneficial for individuals which are looking for alternatives. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I've seen how it can impact gut health, which can cause blood sugar levels to be elevated. I promise you, it all goes back to the gut. I know this episode is not about the gut, but it's all intertwined because we live in one body. So this is what I like to tell individuals. I'd like to meet them where they are at in their comfort level and just give them the details and let them know that really the jury is still out. Some individuals make the decision to really limit sugar alternatives in their diet, and some individuals do choose to consider. So I, I'm definitely waiting. I'm one that is itching to find more randomized controlled double blind studies to be conducted. But if someone is looking to decrease their intake of sugar alternatives, erythritol, then by means, I definitely empower you to do that. And if you're someone that feels comfortable using it at this present time, then that is definitely a decision that I respect you making as well. So really for me, I, I'm currently to be transparent in the middle of the two issues because I definitely want to be mindful of gut health and how that can impact your blood sugars. But I also want to know more robust research. What is it saying? We found this data. So what are we going to do about it? 
Right. Because especially when it comes to diabetes, some artificial sweeteners could be very helpful for people who have diabetes. And, you know, by the way, our first episode of Cranberry Chronicles was all about gut health. So I don't know if you've tuned into it, but you want to tune into that episode because it was very interesting. Okay. So let's change directions a bit and talk about one of my favorite subjects relates to prevention of disease when it comes to food shopping. And ever since my book came out, which is Read It Before You Eat It, Taking You From Label to Table, I'd say that the most popular question that I got from media was, what is the most important thing to look at on a food label? And my answer was usually the same, which was, it depends. Because it really depends on what you're looking at. It depends on your own particular needs and what on the label speaks out to you. So we know that reading and understanding food labels is so important when it comes to helping to support heart health and to control diabetes. And Kim, could you tell us just a little bit about when we look at added sugar? I know that the Heart Association came out with guidelines about added sugar. And I also know that people were so surprised that the Heart Association would be talking about sugar. Like, what does that have to do with heart disease anyway? We've learned that today. But could you tell us about their guidelines? Sure. So the American Heart Association actually recommended that men consume nine teaspoons of sugar on a daily basis of added sugar, let me say that, and women and children no more than six teaspoons of added sugar. So just to give you all a visual of what that actually means, one 12 ounce can of soda is about eight teaspoons of added sugar. So that is quite a lot. So when we look at the foods that are some of the red flags, I would say to have added sugar in them, as I mentioned earlier, it all goes back to those sugar sweetened beverages. Michelle, tell us a little bit about things on the label, like saturated fat or sodium. We know that those factors are so important when it comes to heart disease. So saturated fat and sodium are important, but like you also said, it really depends on what you're looking at, right? So if you're looking at tomato sauce, it's going to be different than if you're looking at a complete frozen meal, right? What are you using it for? So, so many things are important, but I do like to look at saturated fat now, especially where many people are like, I need to, you know, you go to the doctor and they say low sodium. Some doctors are like, oh, go vegan. Many people will go and buy a bunch of vegan products and it's very high in saturated fat because of the coconut oil and the coconut products. I've seen home-cooked meat, like vegan, like you know, chef prepared or even vegan, like anything have upwards of 15 grams of saturated fat in one serving because of the coconut oil. And when we're looking to reduce this, you know, it should really be five to 6% of your caloric intake for the entire day. So depending on your body size and your current cardiovascular amount, that can be 13 grams of saturated fat or less or a little bit more. So we need to look at the label. And so saturated fat being two grams or less is a lower saturated fat food, but it depends on the whole entire meal of what you're eating. Not only saturated fat and sodium matter though, we also need to look at carbs and fiber. But for me, I always like to say, Manufacturers are really good at knowing what their marketing consumer wants. And so oftentimes they manipulate the serving size to benefit what their consumers are looking for. So my big advice is go to the ingredient list. What are you eating? So I pull up a lot of times clients are like, oh, I got these vegan chicken strips. I go, okay, the nutrition facts look wonderful. We go to what they're eating. It's literally nothing that anybody knows what it is. 
And so that's a red flag. We need to know what we're eating because that's highly processed and that can cause inflammation in the body as well. And heart disease is an inflammatory condition. So we need to look at the whole thing and not kind of just isolate one piece because then we don't get to really understand, is this truly heart healthy? Now you know why I wrote a whole book on that topic. <laughs> well, just we would be remiss without mentioning exercise and physical activities. So just briefly, Kim, can you give us an idea about some of the exercise guidelines for Americans? Yeah, so the physical activity guidelines for Americans recommends that we get at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity on a weekly basis. So I don't know about you, but I don't like to call it exercise because exercise seems like you have to put in too much work. So I like to call it joyful movement. So I like to tell people, you know, if you're doing, I'm in Florida, so it's it's warm most of the time, water aerobics or even brisk walking or even, you know, riding your bike. I even like to tell people when you're cooking, do a dance party, make sure that you break out into a sweat, something where you are moving your body. But not only that, I also think that flexibility and strength training are quite important as well. So I just like to tell individuals, move your body, but before you start moving, make sure that you get that ground clearance from your doctor to make sure that your heart is healthy to do so. Sounds very realistic to me. Well, if you could both share just one tip, and I know that that's always a hard question. What is one thing you could tell us about a heart-healthy diet? If you could just give one tip, what would that one tip be? Kim, let's start with you. My tip is quite simple. Eat more plants. And the reason for that, again, dietary guidelines for Americans state 90% of women and 97% of men don't get enough fiber in their diet. So the plant kingdom is loaded with not only fiber, but nutrients, phytonutrients. So it's simple. Eat more plants. Okay. I like that one. Plant-based diets are not going away, especially because they're not a diet. But anyway, Michelle, what is your one tip? I would focus on what you're adding to the diet. Whenever we hear of heart disease or diabetes or any condition, it's always like, I can't eat this. I can't eat that. I can't eat. Here's a list of all the things you cannot eat. Well, let me tell you. If you don't add in all the therapeutic foods in your diet, you won't reach your goals either. We need to be focusing on all the good stuff that's there, our fruits, our vegetables, our whole grains, our lean protein, our heart-healthy fats, our omega-3s. We need to include them in our diet to protect our heart, to have energy, to optimize our entire life, but just quality of life, our mood, our gut, all of our bodies. So focus on what you're eating versus what you have to eliminate. Exactly. Typical dietitians talking about the positive side of eating and what we can eat, not what we should be restricting. I love that. So I'm sorry that we're coming to the, the close of our show here, but I do want to ask one more question that we love to ask our guests is, how do you enjoy cranberries? So Kim, what is your favorite way to have cranberries? Well, I currently like cranberries in a sangria mocktail. And the reason for that, I'm always looking for a way to stay hydrated and I'm always looking for a way to increase the antioxidants in my diet. So I use 100% cranberry juice, but then I cut it with something like apple juice that tends to be a little sweeter. I chop up all my citrus. I actually put fresh cranberries that I freeze. I get a huge variety of them during Thanksgiving. And I just freeze them so I can have them throughout the year and I put it on top. So I really am a fan of a sangria mocktail. Wow, those are some powerful ice cubes you have there. I love that idea. Love it. And it's so pretty. You could actually put cranberries into ice cube trays if anyone makes old fashioned ice cubes. 
and they look so pretty in beverages, even in water. Like I love to serve water with that and it just looks so pretty on the table. Okay, Michelle, what about you? I love cooking it down with a lot of orange zest and orange juice and then mixing it into like a hot bowl of oatmeal with some a little bit of yogurt. And it's just that whole blend, I don't know, is delicious. Well, thank you both for joining us today. I just want to end with the bottom line. And that's that we've heard that diabetes and heart disease are lifelong conditions. You know, but with the right diets, with physical activity, and maybe even with medication, we know that these are conditions that could be controlled. But your diet has to be realistic, as we discussed. It has to be sustainable because then it will sustain good health. And after all, what does the word diet mean anyway? The word diet means way of life. So it's not trying to fit your diet into your life. It's just trying to make your lifestyle work in accordance with the foods that you eat and the way that you live for you and your whole family. So thank you both so much for joining us today. I've learned so much and uh, we hope you'll come back again soon. Sponsored by the Cranberry Institute, it's a not-for-profit organization founded in 1951 to further the success of cranberry growers and the industry in the Americas through health, agricultural, and environmental stewardship research, as well as cranberry promotion and education. Thank you again so much for listening and for sharing your time with us. 